Would you pray with me? Father, we confess our hearts are prone to wander. They're prone to be weary, and so we need your help even this morning. Would you encourage our hearts with your word? Speak to us through your spirit. Build up your church for your glory and for our joy. We ask these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Thank you guys for leading today. Uh, One quick thing. As we make these adjustments and as uh, people are following the the protocols and the things they're encouraged to do, uh, many of you have probably had a phone call like this um, where someone calls and says, hey, I may have been in close contact with someone and so I'm waiting on a test or I'm waiting to hear. Um, you, You might notice some different faces around or some empty slots on our worship team or in the back or helping with our strike team, which comes early and, and sets up, uh, does paper on the tables and preps our communion supplies, things like that. Um, so, so if I could just give you this encouragement before we jump into our text today, is that if you are here and, you, and you'd like to continue to worship with us on, on Sunday mornings for as long as we can, um, even like this, if you're willing to say, I'd be willing to step in and serve once in a while in one of these areas to, to help. Maybe you're not signing up for the next six years, um, but maybe to say, I'm willing. Um, would you just let us know that? Either talk to your community group member or leader, talk to one of us. Um, you can talk to, to Kyle, who's playing drums today. Um, uh, Nate, Nathan's, in the, Nate's in the back today. He's running sound. Um, he'd be the guy to talk to if you wanted to learn how to run sound. Um, you t- talk to one of us. We'd love to... Um, ask of you to consider, those of you who are here on a regular basis on Sunday mornings, to say, yeah, I could I'd come a little early and help, or I could stick a little bit after a, a first service and, and help serve on the strike team, or, or, or help maybe I have a hidden talent that I've been keeping to myself. You're a really good triangle player, and you can help Kyle out by joining our worship team or, or whatever that is. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, if that's you and you're here regularly on Sundays, in order for us to keep doing this well, um, as well as we can, uh, we just need a hand. Because um, we're getting more and more phone calls of folks who are like, hey, I can't make it. I have to stay home while I'm waiting on a test or things like that. So there's the shameless plug for uh, helping out. Um, keep doing what we're doing on Sunday mornings. All right, we have a lot to get to today, so turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. Um, we're actually going to be reading from verse 12 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 20 of chapter 2. And the reason is we're kind of taking the first week was um, Habakkuk's first complaint to the Lord and the Lord's answer. And that was kind of short and sweet, right in 11 verses. And then when Habakkuk gets the Lord's answer, he says, hold up. What? He has a question about the answer God gave him. And so that takes us from verse 12 of of chapter 1 all the way. And then the Lord answers him again. And it takes us all the way through chapter 2, verse 20. So um, as you're finding that passage today, let me just set up where we're at. We're looking at Habakkuk and Zephaniah this fall through the lens of God's work in and among his people. His goal, it seems, is to bring about renewal within his people. And the way in which he's going to do that is by raising up, in this case, Babylon, to, in a sense, discipline the wickedness and the sinfulness that has crept in to God's people. So the book opens with Habakkuk asking God, God, there's all this wickedness and corruption among us. Why are you taking so long to do something about it? And the Lord says, oh, I am doing something about it. I'm raising up the, the, the Babylonians to, to come in, and, and they're going to do their thing, and, and then I'm going to deal with the wickedness and corruption among you. In our section here, 
uh, where we left it off last week, opens up with Habakkuk asking a question like, wait a minute, do, do you know who they are? That's kind of where we start. So um, if Habakkuk's first question is, why? Why are you taking so long to do something about the wickedness we see? His second question is, how? How can you use, God, this unjust people to fix the justice problem in Judah? How can you use a nation that's worse than we are to bring discipline? It's one thing when God seems silent, and we've experienced this, right, in our own lives. It's a whole other thing when God gives us an answer that we might not like or we don't understand. See, we often question God's goodness. We often question God's justice or God's wisdom when He acts in ways that we don't understand or answers us in ways that we don't understand. But, as we'll find here in this passage, we are called to believe by faith that God is always at work. He's always working justice. He's always working good. So he's always working justice for the wicked, and he's always working good and renewal for his people. That's what we're going to look at a little today. So we're going to read our text, Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12 all the way through 220. I will try to read it quickly, um, but not too quick. Um, But there's a lot to get to. It should be on the screen as well. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. This is Habakkuk's second complaint. The Lord has answered him, and he has another question, starting in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? The Lord... uh, Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. 
You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a stone, a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's holy word given to strengthen the faith of his children and his church. Amen? Now, there are many times when God seems silent and we're forced to wait. There are also many times when God does answer us, and we're not sure we like His answer, often because we don't understand. So the big idea for this whole section, and quite possibly for the entire book of Habakkuk, is found right here in chapter 2, verse 4. We just read it, where Habakkuk is reading or is recording the Lord's answer, and the Lord says, the righteous shall live by his faith. There's this level of perspective that we talked about last week that we need that we often don't have. And so we're called to trust by faith that God is always at work. And there's this level of understanding that we often don't have of God's work in the world. And so we're called to trust by faith, that God will always be just, that He will always do what is good, and that He is always working to bring about justice and always working to bring about renewal. So we're going to look at this passage through that lens of faith. Habakkuk acts in faith. He's acting in faith both in his questions and in his waiting. We'll look at that here this morning. And the Lord answers, affirming Habakkuk's faith. And God is reminding Habakkuk. Through Habakkuk, he's reminding his people in Judah. And he's reminding us of his character. He's reminding us of his care for his people. So let's look at the first idea here. Habakkuk's questions flow from his faith in God. Now, maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't. But in verse 11... The Lord finishes his answer, and then in verse 12, Habakkuk responds. It's abrupt. In fact, it's very abrupt. There's no, oh Lord, thank you for your answer. I have another question. Oh Lord, you're great and mighty. How deep is your understanding and your wisdom? Will you humbly accept another request? Habakkuk just jumps right in. And just, hold on a second, right? 
One biblical scholar I read said that there's really nothing like this response to God in all of Scripture. It's unique. Habakkuk just jumps right in. Wait a minute. Did you say Chaldeans? You're using Babylon? Is that, is that what you said, Lord? But in this complaint, like his first, you can almost sense the desperation in Habakkuk's voice. I came to you, Lord. You're the one who can do something about all of this wickedness. And this, this is your answer? I don't understand. But he goes back to that same source. This is an act of faith for Habakkuk. Look at his complaint. Verses 12 through 17 is this, this second response. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. He, he's appealing to God's character. That God is everlasting and omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing. He's he's confessing his belief. Isn't this true of you, right, God? You know all. You see all. And we shall not die. There's promises in your word that you're going to preserve your people, right? He's relying on what he knows to be true about God's character, that he's holy and good and all-powerful, and that he has promised to always preserve his own. He says it here at the end of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. The them here is Babylon. Even in his question, he's acknowledging, okay, Lord, I can see this little sliver that you have ordained this nation to bring about reproof as correction. So even in his confusion, even in his frustration, even in the unknowns, he's still able to say, okay, God, I can kind of get my mind around what you're doing here. So he's confessing that the Lord is the one who's raised up the Chaldeans to execute judgment, discipline. And that the Lord has established them. They're the ones who are appointed to be the bringers of this reproof, this correction. So although Habakkuk does seem a little shocked, concerned about God's choice instrument of discipline, he doesn't disagree that God is the one who is bringing this discipline about. So hang on to that idea just for a second. We're going to keep going. Verse 13, Habakkuk speaks about God's purity, that God can't abide evil, that he can't not be just and holy. So, so what tr- is troubling Habakkuk in this is, is this. If God is everlasting, if God is holy, if God has promised to, to always preserve his people, if God can't treat evil lightly, why does it seem that the wicked will win? That those who are not as bad seem to lose out to the ones who are the worst. And then Habakkuk paints this picture of humanity like fish and the Chaldeans as the fishermen. They capture the fish with hook and net. They celebrate their catch, right? They're happy, so happy with their own success that Habakkuk says in verse 16 that they sacrifice to their nets and make offerings to their drag nets for by them they live in luxury and their food is rich. This makes sense, right? Babylon's wealth and power have come as a direct result of the plundering of the wealth 
of other nations, the destruction of other peoples, the enslavement of other nations. Of course, they would worship at the altar of their own nets. Look what we have done. Look how awesome we are. Yea, us. That's exactly what he's saying here. That they would worship at the altar of their own nets, or in this case, not metaphorically, their own swords that have won for them this luxury in which they're living. And Habakkuk asks, is Babylon just going to keep filling up their nets and doing it over and over again? It's a legitimate question. When will this end? When will there actually be justice? Right? We feel this. And maybe if we haven't felt that, and I just lovingly say, we will, you will, live a few more years, experience a few more heartaches, and you'll ask yourself, that doesn't seem right. I've sat, just as a, let me give you a, a picture of this. I've sat with couples who are weeping over the, the inability to conceive, dealing with infertility for years. And we just, they're, they're desiring this, this good thing, and for whatever reason, it's not happening, and they're weeping. Or I'm sitting with a couple who has lost their newborn son, and they're asking why. There's a couple in our congregation this week who is preparing to walk into a birth situation that is extremely challenging, that they're not sure how, what, what it's going to hold. And so we ask some of these questions and we go, ah, oh, this doesn't seem fair, this doesn't seem right. In fact, I've sat with a couple here in this room and just wept over the, the inability to conceive when less than a half a mile from here, there's a clinic where image bearers are pulled from their mother's wombs. And, and we sit and weep and ask God, why? Why does the wrong seem to prevail in the midst of grief even? Habakkuk's complaint is a faith-filled and righteous complaint. God, I know who you say that you are, but I don't understand why evil seems to prosper. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk ends his complaint. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post. I will station myself on the tower and look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk sees himself as a, as a watchman. We don't have the same kind of uh, military strategy today. We don't, have, we don't guard our cities in this way where we have watchtowers that look out over the the access points to our cities and our important places. The watchman's job was to literally stand on the wall and watch, hence the name, the name watchman. Really self-explanatory and helpful for those of us who are slow. What do you do? Watchman. You can figure that out. But their goal in that was the protection of the city. They were waiting to make sure that the, the things that they were expecting were coming and the things that they weren't expecting, mostly other nations, threats, 
that they could know, see them coming far off, and they could be a voice of, of warning to the city to prepare, to be ready. In fact, this language uh, of watchmen is, is common, somewhat common among Old Testament prophets. They stood on the wall, they watched, they waited, they listened for God to speak so that they might be able to encourage and correct and build up God's people. Habakkuk is trusting that God will speak to him. This isn't an ultimatum, right? This isn't a, God, if you answer me, I will start working out five days a week. God, if you answer me, I will read my Bible more often. This this is not what's happening here. This isn't a tantrum. He's not speaking as if God owes him. Rather, he speaks as if he believes that God actually is who he says he is, that God actually will do what he said he will do in caring for his people, in speaking to his people, in giving them the way through disaster. So he waits, echoing the words of Psalm 38, where David says, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. I will wait upon the Lord. Now, I often think that we say we are waiting on the Lord. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'm guessing many of you have used that language. I'm just waiting on the Lord for an answer, for some direction in your life. Maybe you've got a question. But in reality, are we really waiting? I mean, we're waiting because we have to wait, because we don't have an answer. So we're like forced to wait because we can't change the circumstances. But we're not waiting expectantly. We're not waiting uh, expecting God to speak. We ask of Him more like we work a vending machine. If I pray the right things, if I do the right things, then God must answer me. He must dispense an answer rather than I trust that God will speak in His time for my good. And so I'm asking and I'm waiting expectantly, not pull a lever, get a response. I I don't know about you. Do you you tend to organize your prayers that way, framed with this idea that God owes us an answer rather than trusting Him to be faithful to answer? That's, That's a distinction with a very big difference. Because sometimes I think we wait impatiently as if God owes us a timely response. Or, the other side of that, sometimes we're not waiting expectantly because we're actually really busy working our, our side plan, our plan B, just in case. We either don't think He's going to answer, or we might think we know what He's going to answer, and we're preemptively saying, we don't like that. So we hedge our bets and make our own plan B. I, um, a number of years ago, I was able to spend some time with some friends who did mission work in central Mexico among indigenous peoples. And when you'd go to visit, they'd take you to some of the, the major cultural sites, both uh, uh, native, kind of Aztec history, as well as um, Roman Catholic uh, expressions there in Mexico City in particular. Um, there's a young man who came along who was being discipled by... Uh, this, this missionary couple, a new believer in Jesus. And at one of the places we were just kind of observing culture for the day, there were fields and fields of flowers being grown. And, and the, the missionary couple said, this is one of my favorite times of year and one of the, my least favorite times of year. 
And I said, well, why is that? Well, because they're growing all these beautiful flowers, fields and fields of them, for the Day of the Dead. And the the beauty of it is, look at all this beauty that God has created, The, the wealth of color and smell. It was gorgeous. And yet, it was all gathered up for superstition. And so I, we started to talk to this young man who, who, with his family, would put out flowers and favorite food of, lo- of loved ones who have died onto their grave sites or at a little maybe uh, shrine kind of thing set up in the home. And I was asking, why, why do you do that? And he said, well, we, we do that because tr- tradition tells us that if we put out the, the foods that they like and the flowers that are beautiful and smell nice, that it'll help them find their way back and it'll please them as they, as they visit and this young man was reconciling, trying to reconcile, wrestling with what he had grown up to understand and his newfound faith in Jesus and what the Scriptures are starting to do. And he was, he was outwardly wrestling with this reality. And he said, you know, I'm still, I'm still helping my family with their celebrations and with their, with their preparations. He goes, but, but I don't really think, I don't really think uh, anyone comes back. Like, I, I don't think it does anything. And I just asked, like, so, okay, so you do that because, like, you, you just love them and you want to spend time with them? He goes, well, yeah, but, but just in case they do come back. Right? And I'm, not, I'm not throwing this guy under the bus. But do but you see that, that disconnect there where he's wrestling with, I don't really think my, his grandparents, for example, are going, to, are going to come back and visit because we put out their favorite food. But I'm going to put it out just in case they do. Only, I'm only going, I only wanted to point that out because it, it's an example of, of what we do all the time in hedging our bets, especially if we're anticipating an answer we, we might not like. Habakkuk's answer, his, 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 act, his, action, or excuse me, his asking and his waiting is full of faith. Yes, he is troubled, but he is still believing that all that God has said about himself, all that God has said that he will do, that he will do. He's believing that God is good. He knows that God is just, and he knows that God will always care for his people. So he's not hedging his bets. He's not shaking his fist. He's not saying, God, you owe me. He's saying, God, I, I believe you, that you're holy and just and good, and that you do good. So I'm just going to wait, trusting you while I'm waiting, but I'm going to wait and then when you're ready, when you think I'm, I'm ready, I, I trust you'll give me an answer. It's a very different approach. So when God's answer is confounding or confusing, concerning, he asks God for understanding. He assumes the problem is on his end and not on God's. And we have no idea how long his waiting is here. For us, it goes from Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand at my watch post, to verse 2, and the Lord answered me. This could have been in a moment. This could have been a week later. We, we don't know. But let's look at God's answer. And the Lord answered me. First, he didn't have to answer, but he did. He could have said, I've already told you what's going on. Deal with it. But he didn't. And he tells Habakkuk, write this down so that he, who, he may run who reads it. 
This idea, maybe that is, is, is a little confusing to you, this idea of the one who is running. In the Old Testament, often it's used as the, the voice of the prophetic, right? The prophet is the one who runs to God's people with God's message. So the Lord is telling Habakkuk to write this down because God's people are going to need to read what I have to say, not just for this generation, but for generations to come. Write this down so that any who read it can run. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Oh, God could have just given him that. Habakkuk, be patient. The time will come. Period. He could have just given him that, and, and that may have been enough. But he doesn't. He continues. Look at verse 4. Behold, he says, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Who is this whose soul is puffed up? This is the, the wicked, the unrighteous, the one who seems to be winning all the time. The Lord is saying he is self-inflated. His soul is puffed up, but the righteous shall live by his faith. You see the contrast between the, the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous is secure and confident in what he sees, not understanding that it is rotten to the core. It is destined to crumble. But the righteous, the man or woman of faith, they remember who God is. They remember that God is faithful, that He has promised to redeem. And even though they can't see it, they know that this redemption is coming. And then perhaps to clarify for Habakkuk and remind him of how he deals with evil, he calls out all who are unrighteous. One of the concerns of Habakkuk is, wait a minute, God, these people are like extra wicked. I mean, there's corruption and evil and sin in the camp, but, but seriously, do a little deep dive if you'd like, just a Wikipedia search on the history of, of Babylonian rule in the ancient Near East. I mean, they were awful. What they did to prisoners, those who they enslaved, particularly women, awful, depraved to the core. And Habakkuk knows this, and he's like, seriously. But the Lord is saying, I, I see them. They are literally drunk on their own greed, on their own power. They are never satisfied. No matter how much wine they consume, no matter how much wealth they amass for themselves, no matter how much violence they can commit, they are never satisfied. And judgment is coming. And in verse 6 and on of chapter 2, the Lord pronounces woes. Woes are warnings. And these don't just come from the Lord himself but he says, these woes will be spoken like taunts by all of those people whom you have victimized. The victims themselves will, will return these judgments on you. Because what the Lord is doing here with Habakkuk and reminding us is he takes sin seriously. Don't think for a second, Habakkuk, 
that just because I'm using this wicked nation to bring about the chastisement and the discipline of my people, that I'm light or soft on sin. Theologian Richard Patterson summarizes these woes according to their sins like this, and he lists them all as Uh, he alliterates them all, which is really good. Again, I've used this joke before, but it's true. Alliteration helps me. Maybe it helps you too, right? He breaks it up into these five areas of sin, these woes. Woe to you, uh, Chaldeans, for your sins of plundering, your sins of plotting, your sins of pillaging, of perverting, and for their polytheistic worship. Worshiping other gods. We're going to look at each one just briefly. Each one could probably be a sermon in itself, but we don't have time for that. Okay, verses 6 through 8. Woe to you for your plundering. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Basically this. Woe to you who have plundered and stolen what is not your own, for you will be plundered. All that you've taken wrongfully will be taken from you. That's the judgment that the Lord offers to them for their stealing, for their plundering. Verses 9 through 11. Woe to you who gets evil gain for his house. You plan and plot for evil gain. You leverage power for dishonest gain to pad your own comforts. You've used blood money to buy stone and wood for your comfortable and warm homes. But like Abel's blood calling out from the ground in Genesis 4, or like the loud heartbeat from under the floorboards of Edgar Allan Poe's A Telltale Heart. You've all read that? From under the floorboards or from the ground itself, the blood of all those you have plundered and murdered and violently will testify against you. And in fact, the foundations, the stone and the beams of your own house will give testimony against your sin. Woe to you who plot for dishonest gain. Verses 12 through 14. You haven't just built your own house with blood money. Your entire culture Your entire civilization is built on violence and blood. You think you are full of your own glory that you've earned for yourself by your own swords. But in contrast, when the Lord brings judgment, all your glory will be buried under the flood of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to you, he says, for those of you who rest in your own glory and your own violent works. Verses 15 through 17. Woe to you who manipulate others in order to fulfill your own sinful desires. The imagery here that the Lord is using with Habakkuk is is getting someone drunk so that they can be taken advantage of. They can be exposed and shamed. But the Lord turns it back and says, you'll drink all right, but not from the cup of celebration. No, no. The cup you're filling up is not one of glory. You are filling up with every sinful action the cup of wrath, and you will drink from that cup, the Lord says. The cup in the Lord's right hand, which Jeremiah 25 says is the cup of the Lord's wrath. 
All the violence you have done, the blood you have spilled, will be brought back upon you. You will be exposed. You will be ashamed. You will be destroyed. And finally, the the last one, verses 18 through 20. Babylon was a nation with many gods. That word earlier is polytheistic. Small g, gods. They had different gods for different parts of life, for war, for health, for fertility, for harvest. And this idolatry and false worship was creeping into God's people as well. So the Lord says, Woe to you who carves a little wooden statue and then expects it to come to life. It can't speak. It can't teach. Woe to you who trust in such things. And then in contrast in verse 20, the Lord says this, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. And He ends His response to Habakkuk. Now when you read these woes, maybe they make you a little fired up. Maybe you're like, yeah, Lord, go, go get them. Or, or maybe, maybe you make you go, ooh, that's a, little, that's a little heavy there for a Sunday morning. I, I, it's hard sometimes when we think about judgment in this way. But what these woes, these judgments are designed to remind Habakkuk, and what I think they're designed to remind us is that the Lord is not short on justice. He, he's not slow to save. His arm is not too short. He will deal with wickedness. Always. And this has two effects, I think. One is a warning to all of us who are tempted to treat sin lightly. Because God doesn't. And the second is this. It's a reminder that even though we don't always see it in our timing or according to our expectations or in ways that we are hoping for, God will always do what is good. He will always do what is right. He will always be just. So I ask, are there spaces in your life where you're tempted to treat sin lightly? Places where you seem to be getting away with it? The Lord is reminding the prophet and reminding us that he always deals with sin. And let let me remind you that on this side of the cross, We see tangibly God's dealing with sin in Jesus Christ. He died for our sin. Our sin was on Him to deal with it, not for us to dabble in it or for us to continue to live under its curse and shame. That's the good news of the gospel, that God doesn't just wipe sin under the rug. He deals with it. He takes it seriously, and He placed it on Christ, that we might not carry it, that we might not die for for our own sins because he has died for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, him, for the unrighteous, us, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Therefore, we don't take sin lightly because God didn't take it lightly. But we trust by faith in the work of Christ for us. We hold onto the grace that is available to us. And we confess our sins. We, we talk in the light of forgiveness, 
We, we believe that the one who began this work of transformation and salvation in us will bring it to completion. Or maybe, with the evil and sin you see around you, the questions you have in your own life, what does it look like to be able to trust God while we wait for His answer? Do we trust that God will be just even if, even if the timing is different than you or I would hope? Where are we tempted to take justice into our own hands, believing that you or I know better rather than God? See, we talk about this already not yet reality a fair amount here at River City. The now and the not yet. Because this is where we live. We live between the sure, firm, and solid promises of God in Christ Jesus that are available now. Life eternal in Christ available now. And wait to see their grand and full fulfillment in the life to come. It is both and. He promises that he's enough for us. He promises that his, perfect, his power is made perfect in our weakness. So it's okay for us to be weak in him because then he's the strong one. It's okay for us to ask for help because he has given us the Holy Spirit who is to be our helper. And yes, we hope that it won't always be like this. There have been many times over the last number of years where I have prayed, come Lord Jesus. And that one day, all that is wrong will be made right. We pray for that and we hope for that. And we believe that he will bring it to pass just as he said. Let me read it again from chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. In some ways, the vision of God's promise is absolutely fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And yet, there are elements to his promise that we've yet to see fully fulfilled. Right? Still we labor in these broken jars of clay, and one day we will see with clear eyes, and we will know even now as we are known. But still the vision waits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up and is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Friends, from our limited understanding, we often find ourselves questioning God's goodness, his wisdom, his timing. But we are called to live not only by what our eyes can see or what our minds can comprehend, but we are called to live by faith, faith that God is always at work and faith that all of his work is done for our good, that justice will be done and that renewal and redemption, he is always working for his people to bring us all the way to the end. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that at the right time you sent Christ Jesus to die for the ungodly. Not early, not late, but at the right time to deal with our deepest 
need to bring dead hearts to life. Father, we confess it is, it is easy to get lax and sit on our hands as it relates to sin, as it relates to waiting on you. Father, I pray that you'd bring to light by your Spirit the places where we need to confess that, that we would not bear the weight and the shame of that sin, but we would be able to confess it and walk freely in forgiveness in the light of Jesus Christ. I pray for all of us here this morning for that reality to be true, that you would free us from the bonds of sin and shame. Father, there are many things that you know because we've told you or you know because we haven't told you, but you know our hearts that are hard for us to process, hard for us to understand, that are burdens we carry where we're just still asking, why, Lord, or how long, Lord, or I don't understand, Lord. Would you remind us even today, as we look upon the, 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 the promise fulfilled in Jesus, you have given us all of yourself, and that that's enough. Help us to trust you. Give us understanding where we lack. And encourage our hearts as we look again upon the, the beauty of your love for us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.